0: Good morning and welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Today, I will be your host, and my name is Jorna Taylor, and I am so glad to welcome you here to Wisconsin. Unfortunately, we are down a panel member here in the Citizen Action of Wisconsin uh, recording studio, as it may be. Matt Brusky, unfortunately, cannot be with us today. He is in Chicago doing important work on... It's
1: It's movement politics meeting.
0: Movement politics meeting. Somebody, somebody write in and define that for us. Uh, but Matt is down in Chicago doing really important work. But as you heard, we are joined here in our illustrious studio by Citizen Action Executive Director Robert Craig.
1: Good morning, Jorna.
0: Good morning, Robert. It's so good to be here. So, today we have another exciting week from Wisconsin for you. We are going to talk healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Everybody gets healthcare. Oh, wait. No, they don't under the Republican plan, apparently. Uh, So, we're going to talk about healthcare. We're going to talk about my favorite person in the whole world, Paul Ryan, the speaker himself. And we're going to be joined by a special guest. George Gale, who is the co-director of the National Network uh, People's Action, and he's been in town lately giving some talks, and so he stopped by the recording studio and had a conversation with Robert a day ago, and so we're we're pretty excited to bring that to you as well. And finally, we're we're also going to talk about jobs because Wisconsin, you know, it just keeps failing upward it seems with the uh, jobs here in the state. So, uh, with that, Robert, uh, healthcare—anything going on this week in healthcare?
1: Well, we finally got at least the replacement plan, the one that's kind of been missing for seven years, that they've been working on.
0: I I thought it was nine, but, you know, whatever, bygones.
1: Yeah, Yeah, or longer. You could go back to Theodore Roosevelt uh, (laughs) because he didn't do one until he had bolted the Republican Party. But anyway, um, it's not fully the plan in the sense that we have no congressional budget office numbers and they're actually taking votes in committee level without knowing what it would cost and not knowing how many people will lose coverage. Though we know the, 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 the legislative details and therefore we know it will be very bad at a number of levels. But it is amazing that this is thing's being launched uh, without congressional budget office numbers. And we can dig into those, Jorna, but the other thing we can dig into is how it's being assaulted left and right and there's a right-wing rebellion against it from the Freedom Caucus and Rand Paul and others as well
0: so I'm sure our listeners spend as much time on the face space as I do actually I hope you don't i I hope you
1: I probably need to spend more are productive
0: in your work day um, but I've been seeing all sorts of headlines come across my news feed that like this slate article early reports indicate that everyone literally everyone hates the Republican health care plan uh, another friend posted that I think it was maybe a Washington Post or some national news source said that doctors, insurers, and Republicans all hate the healthcare plan. So who likes it, Robert? What what is this gonna do?
1: Well, currently Paul Ryan oh, and, he likes and everything. Donald Trump says he likes it and is going to apparently use his bully pulpit and or I guess that's really a Twitter pulpit <laughs> and is supposedly they're well, they're means- asking whether he has the attention span to make phone calls to members of Congress and twist their arms or not. Can't
0: he just tweet at them?
1: <laughs> well, that's the question. He'd probably probably be more effective, though some of them probably don't tweet so their staffs will say, Well so the president said something on that thing you're not on, uh, Senator about you.
0: What if he Snapchats them?
1: Right. He Snapchats Ron Johnson, yeah, that'll that'll work.
0: <laughs> That's gonna be awesome. I can't wait.
1: But we shouldn't we laugh and it's crazy, but they're gonna try to use the power of the speaker's office and the presidency and the majority leader to ram this thing through. And they're more hierarchical than progressives and Democrats, so we should not underrate the possibility of them, like, doing this, like, them still considering this to be a better thing to do, like pulling the the bandage off, you know, right off and making a hurt rather than just continuing, because they, what's their other plan if they don't do this plan is is the problem. But here's their fundamental dilemma. Their strategists, and I like this because Democratic politicians over the years have been more likely to do this—that uh, is, adopt like a Republican idea, like "we're just going to lower taxes and that'll be great," and then say we're better at it than they are. And then, of course, if you really want to, uh, if you really want to do nothing but drain resources for government at the state level, especially, then you should vote for a Republican, right? So in this case, they decided uh, in their zeal destroy the Affordable Care Act over the years and say everything bad about it in this last election to start saying that health care is too expensive. People can't afford it. The deductibles are too high. People can't afford premiums. Ron Johnson had these testimonial ads, right, with people, I can't afford my health care that looked like you would think they would Russ Feingold ads, right? And so they positioned themselves as we're going to provide more affordable health care. In fact, they've persuaded a lot of Republican voters that's a role of government. The problem is they don't think that, so it was a bait-and-switch. And the problem also is, so, so it was always going to be a bait and switch where they didn't actually do what they were promising, uh, but the second thing is, is that they are hell-bent on giving back uh, the progressive funding in the Affordable Care Act. That was a surtax on investment income, a surtax on Medicare for very high-income people, back to those high-income people. So they've taken all the revenue away for coverage, uh, and then they want to spend less money on health care but promise more health care, more affordable health care. And so the result is, since they would made these promises, they're not just taking it all away, though that's what the Freedom Caucus wants, right, and is still demanding, and that's what Rand Paul is is demanding, right? Uh, but what they are doing is they're doing as the as the Freedom Caucus rightly says, in Obamacare light. It's like a bad Obamacare that has less money and doesn't do as many good things. So we could go through the various elements. I'm trying to avoid – we will dig into policy, but I'm trying to tell progressives, think bigger picture about you can't do it with more money and they can't do it because they don't believe in government. They don't don't believe in taxing wealthy people in order to provide a benefit to everyone like guaranteed health care. But then we can go into why it doesn't work.
0: So, Robert, I'm no – Policy wonk, and I'm no maths genius here, but I'm not, I'm always concerned about how we can give more for less. From what I've read, it's just gonna, I have to choose between healthcare and my iPhone, essentially. Uh, That's you know. what Jason
1: Chaffetz, Chaffetz, the congressman from Utah, said. And I've said, because been asked by multiple radio hosts on the air this, and I go, well, at least Representative Chaffetz is being honest about their opinions, and not where Paul Ryan is not. Paul Ryan actually thinks that, but won't say that, right? And let's let the public decide whether they think that if people just would forswear iPhones, they could afford uh, $20,000 a year for their family's health insurance premiums. I don't think iPhones, I haven't bought one, I have an Android, but they're not that expensive, I'm holding an
0: iPhone in my hand right now, and while it's a little pricey, you have to buy it right out when you're not in contract, but anyway, bygones. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm having that problem, Verizon. Uh, It's it's not $20,000 yet. Uh, So one of the things, and we talked a little bit with... Um, Senator Baldwin about this last week uh, on this program, we talked about how healthcare needs to do things like protect pre-existing conditions for people like me. It needs to help low-income folks continue to get access to um, whole healthcare. And it looks to me like we're just going to support this plan, the Republicans are just gonna support this plan just so that they can give more money back to their donors. Is that your take on this as well?
1: Their donors as in like the top like pharma of, and you know Well Pharma, who isn't who's really hurting and the health insurance they industry really which has really gone through a lot of pain, right? <laughs> we just mandated all sorts of customers for them. And uh and, and rich people, yeah. the, the, the the top 0.01%, or they can just buy it you know, out of pocket, a la yeah. carte, right? But at 0.01% of income, that's the top 10th of one we'll get an average $195,000 a year tax break, which they desperately need, and I'm sure they will invest in productive purposes. So that's where the money goes. I guess, and we may have to... Run this into the next segment as well, but let me let me kind of start in low income up kind of order as to what impact this has for one of a, a uh, an organizing um, feature here. And remember, there was a health care system we built up with Medicare and Medicaid uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act, and it goes after a big bunch of that as well. So we decided, and we, by the way, Medicare will be next after if this bill uh, slide Absolutely. comes pushing through. So. We decided in the 1960s under President Johnson, excuse me, he was a senator and representative, but he became president, uh, that uh, very low-income people who had no jobs or had poverty-wage jobs with no benefits couldn't afford health insurance, and so we created Medicaid, Now we expanded over the years. Uh, unfortunately, it was a patchwork. Different states had different eligibility levels, different groups that were eligible. Uh, ACA said everyone under a certain income level uh, would get uh, Medicaid, and therefore very low-income people and a lot, of, mostly workers, and mostly people who just have jobs that don't provide benefits and have barely any discretionary income, would get Medicaid. Okay, So this gets rid of the expansion of Medicaid, uh, effective 2020, though it very generously allows people in the program now to stay in, uh, which is fascinating, but anyone new who's eligible wouldn't go in. And then it guts existing Medicaid. So that's Badger Care in Wisconsin. So there are 750,000 people on BadgerCare in Wisconsin. Forty-five percent of children in the United States get their health insurance through Medicaid. That's how many poor kids there are, right? Forty-five percent. And what they do is they have a, they, a per capita cap, and the whole scheme is designed to cut money out of Medicaid. And then they say, oh, the states will have flexibility. We'll get rid of these federal mandates, like how good the insurance is and who has to be covered. And then they'll have flexibility, that and then people like Scott Walker will find all sorts of ways to make the money go further. That's not going to happen. I, I said on, on a media call yesterday, uh, Walker and Voss may be very be careful because they're the ones who have to make the cuts in a couple of years after the federal government pulls hundreds of billions of dollars out of Medicaid. So that's stage one for low-income people. It guts the existing Medicaid program and the Medicaid expansion.
0: Well, Robert, this sounds exciting. And, you know, we're going to have to go to a break here in a minute. But when we come back, I definitely want to talk about our good friend, the speaker and some of his comments uh, on Wednesday of this week. And also some of the other key provisions that we have seen emerge from that super secret locked room where, you know, I hear Rand Paul went in there and tried to steal a copy of the... uh, of the legislation and and run down the hall but was tackled by some Ryan security guards or at least that's that's the story that I heard I I don't know what you heard Uh, but with that we've got to take a break and uh, we'll see you on the flip side So we're back um, and we're here still talking about healthcare. And over the uh, break, I was talking with our producer, Brian Wildridge, and he was regaling us with a Saturday Night Live-esque tale of White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer using an actual copy of the ACA bill compared to what the Republican Obamacare light bill is as props at one of his briefings and how much thinner it was. I mean, this really is kind of like a Saturday Night Live skit in many ways.
1: If you use fewer words, it's better. And I think they probably say use the pictures. Me- I'd say the meaning of the words... Is, is kind of more important than how many words, but that's just Hey,
0: great. you know, Rand Paul has to be able to carry it as he's running down the hallway. <laughs> uh, so, you know, a couple other things, Robert, that I want to ask you about here, because they're really it's based on the tax credits that are going to help our rich friends get richer, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. One of the things that sticks out to me here is that the tax credits in this new Republican bill aren't going to be adjusted by the local cost of living. So, for example, I live in Milwaukee. And the cost of living in Milwaukee is, I would say, on average, significantly less than in a place like Washington, D.C. or L.A. or, you know, Chicago, even.
1: Well, it actually it's a little bit mis- misnomer that the adjustment on the affordable Act is for the cost of living. It's for the cost of health care. Ah. And health care is much more expensive in Wisconsin. We have the second highest medical services costs in the country, only for, for trailing Alaska. So this will be much worse in Wisconsin because we all thought, you know, the Republican critique is not wrong that the Affordable Care Act subsidies weren't generous enough. And a lot of people are having uh, trouble affording them. So their solution is make them worse, right, rather than make them better. It's like I don't like my car isn't a good car, so I'm going to buy a worse car, right? Duh. And so it's exactly – so what they do is the Affordable Care Act credits are pegged towards your income, what your health insurance costs are. If your, if your premiums go up, if you're in a more expensive area, the subsidy goes up. And in addition to a percentage of your income, so it can, that can't be over a certain percentage of your income, period. This is flat. It's $2,000 for, for younger people, 4000 for seniors, and we'll get to seniors later. And these are young <laughs> seniors before Medicare because it does other horrible things to uh, young seniors who aren't Medicare eligible yet. Um, and so, and it's less. So it's going to be a flat amount that's less. It doesn't care. They don't care. And it doesn't care whether you have enough to actually afford health insurance. So it'll give you 2000 Could be that your health insurance uh, premiums are going to be 8000 a year. Tough. We gave you 2000 and the Freedom Caucus says that's too much to give you, that's obamacare Light. and uh, and it shouldn't be refundable, they say. And what that means is it is refundable. That means that if you don't pay enough in taxes, you get it anyway, like the income tax credit. And so they did do that because they were under a great deal of pressure. But that's deeply offended the Freedom Caucus They considers it a violation of freedom that anyone can have enough to actually buy their own health insurance.
0: Freedom ain't free, Robert. It's just not free. So you mentioned seniors, and it appears that I will be punished, you will be punished, Robert, under this plan for living longer.
1: Well, the Affordable Care Act is overly generous, apparently, according to Paul Ryan, for seniors, so because it, it says that insurance companies can only charge three times more for seniors. Apparently, that wasn't enough. So it's going to be five times more. Perfect. And it's five times more, right, uh, for for a flat amount that may be not enough, because uh, enough, right? So that's that. that compounds that problem. In addition, in order to try to make people buy coverage rather than a digital mandate, which is the government saying you have to buy insurance or pay a fine, they require the insurance companies to charge you 30% more, I think in perpetuity, don't play fact me on that, but that's my understanding, uh, and then, and if you ever have any break in coverage. So in other words, if any time in your life you, you, you stop having health insurance, uh, then you have to pay 30% more. And so you get really sick, you know, you're, well, I mean, what, what happens? Maybe you're in a coma. Well, now forever. I mean, I'm serious, wow. right? And I mean, if, yeah. you, if you're, if you're single, there are a lot of single people and there isn't a family member. Yes, to, there are. To keep paying the health insurance premium, I think you'll lose coverage, right? I don't see any kind of exceptions here. And so that's just to encourage all the young people to buy insurance, by the way. So I'm sure they'll all be buying insurance because they don't want to charge, pay the 30% premium on their ins- on their health insurance forever because they ever stopped buying insurance from the insurance industry.
0: I- I'm sure that Republicans and the insurance industry will be 100% transparent about this 30% surcharge. Just seems It seems like their M.O. to me.
1: I don't know what happens if you go to Canada where you're covered anyway. Don't Come talk back about those socialists. Have, is that breaking coverage?
0: Hmm. So before we before we move topics, I just want to talk about my favorite person, Speaker Ryan, for just a hot minute. And yesterday was International Women's Day. You all may have celebrated by wearing red. If you are a woman, you um, may have joined one of the marches or rallies across the country. Um, I had a lot to do, so I had to go to work. <laughs> but my employer would have totally understood had I not been there. Uh, but on International Women's Day, my friend Paul Ryan bragged about how this bill is going to gut Planned Parenthood. I'm going to go and I'm going to punch him in the face. Robert? Well, do you, do you got nothing on this? I well, mean, you're in favor of me punching all Paul All I can Ryan. say is it's
1: clearly a gift to all women to deny access to women's oh health. My I, God. Right. Is it just, do I have to state that this is? I don't, just say anything, right?
0: It's it's ridiculous. Um, So I'm not actually going to punch Paul Ryan. You know, don't come get me. Social secret service. I'm not going to punch Paul Ryan. But I am going to yell at him about this if I ever see him. So uh, with that, we need to change topics real quick because, you know, Wisconsin has a jobs issue. And under Scott Walker, we're number 36. No, we're number 30. Nope. Nope. We're number 32 in private sector job growth. Robert, what do you think about that number? Sounds pretty good, right?
1: Well, given all the huge corporate tax giveaways like the Manufacturing and Agriculture Tax Credit, it's supposed to be all business friendly and it's supposed to be expanding jobs tremendously. But guess what? The incentive is to take the money. Just take the money. Why would you create jobs? Because we don't actually ask anyone to create jobs for the big tax breaks that Walker has given away and, and is, is slowly bankrupting the state over. And so it's not only that manufacturing jobs, which is why we made manufacturing virtually tax-free at a cost of one point four billion dollars over the next two budgets, right, have gone down by three thousand nine hundred and ninety-six um, over the last year. So that's going just great. And this is. A, but by the way, what I love about conservatives is that since they're counterfactual, since they don't believe in science, they just say it's good anyway, no matter what the numbers say.
0: Well, of. I mean, it is good. We're number 32. That's better than being number 50.
1: Well, that's true. That's a very good point. <laughs> uh, but I like being in the bottom half. But, I mean, Makes there's me no good. accountability. They love to say that schools are unaccountable, right? Where is the... They're, which they're not. Whoa, whoa. Whoa.
0: Weedek is super accountable for all the money that they allowed to go overseas. And, Walker,
1: we got the usual. We got, and I know you want to parse one of his quotes in a a minute that you were having trouble understanding, but there's another Wisconsin Public Radio story where he says it's okay because he doesn't care about the number of jobs, which is very different than how he ran, but it's higher wages. And, by the way, I don't see any evidence because there is not evidence. In fact, Wisconsin manufacturing jobs have had their wages uh, falling for years Uh, But he says that he's focused on raising the wages of manufacturing jobs because they're better jobs now because they're more sophisticated. Though there's no evidence to back that up. And not that evidence is needed. This is how the governor feels.
0: So, Robert, we've all determined that I am not the policy expert here uh, many, many times. So that's fine. I I like I know where my place is here as the woman on the show. (laughs) Oh, um, but, you know. Walker went to a company recently that had outsourced um, some jobs, about a dozen jobs just a few years ago, and I'm a little confused, and I took calculus in high school, but this still doesn't, the maths don't make any sense here to me. Quote, the 12 went overseas, and a year or two ago, they brought back, through automation for the three. Now you can look at that and say, well, that's a net loss of nine. But I say it's a gain of three because those 12 were gone when they were no longer competitive. And so now we have to find ways to be competitive again. Part of it's automation. Wait, I don't even... what. I don't wait. So twelve minus nine plus three. If you divide and subtract the one and carry the six, and the automa- equals jobs overseas. Doesn't the
1: automation take away the jobs too? Nope. Just wondering. And then furthermore, since we since he wants to give huge tax breaks as he does from WeDeck, uh, the West Africa Co- Development Corporation, to the company that's outsourcing anyway. Rather than say, guess what? You don't get the money if you outsource jobs. We use none of our leverage, and we just hope they're the best. It's all good. You know what? The job creators know best, and if they outsourced a bunch of jobs and automated, I don't understand the math, then it must have been the right thing for everyone. It must have been good for workers.
0: But but he, Well, it was, because he claims that the workers who were brought back to operate these automated automated automated. I can speak uh, my children is learning the three that work on that particular job get paid a whole lot more than the 12 so we're winning we're well, totally we're, winning we're
1: looking for the evidence on that by the way that yeah, they're being uh, paid more they're, they're, uh, manufacturing wages are falling in Wisconsin
0: so how are how are we going to hold Walker accountable to this Robert I mean he's been talking about jobs so what are we going to do
1: well, when he runs for reelection, we need a strong progressive candidate that will have yeah. a full-throated response and will not uh, run on Walker Light. Like, I'll do different, different benefits to the job creators to try to encourage them to do nice things for us.
0: We're not just going to run on sending jobs overseas, I see. Don't know that I can support that candidate.
1: Oh, no. I know it's very <laughs> complicated and probably unrealistic.
0: It very much is. Um, so, with that, when we come back, we're going to hear from George Gale, the co director from People's Action, who was here in studio talking with Robert.
1: Welcome back to Battleground, Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, and we have a special guest with us uh, visiting Wisconsin this week. It's George Gale. He's the GO director of People's Action, and People's Action, you can look it up online, is a national network that Citizen Action Wisconsin is a member of, along with a whole lot of other organizations like us across the country. And George is considered one of the top strategists in the progressive movement and is really at the heart of all of the national strategy over the resistance, which we would like to see uh, turn into a revolution. So what we want to talk to George about is what we're seeing with Trump's America, what the resistance looks like, and how we build real power and build towards real fundamental reform by getting through this trial. So, George, thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, happy to be here.
1: So why don't you say a little bit about People's Action and your role in it and and what it aspires to do before we get into the moment?
2: Sure, sure. People's Action is a multiracial working class people's organization. We're based in 30 states. We are black, Latino, white, native and Asian. Um, We do organizing in big cities and in rural communities. And our vision is to advance a structural agenda that reshapes our democracy and economy, and one that serves people and the planet and not corporations. And we do that through organizing in communities, developing leaders, advancing a narrative, and doing electoral politics.
1: So I assume you were fairly distraught when it election night, when it became clear that the uh, unthinkable had happened. So can you kind of talk about that and how you think things have developed since then and what surprised you and what hasn't about what's gone on since election day?
2: Yeah, uh, definitely distraught. I think like most people, there was a moment looking at the Virginia numbers coming in that sensed that something bad was going to happen. Um, and in some ways, not completely shocked because I had been to seven states in seven days leading up to the election, um, talking to our canvassers and and ginning up our folks around both the presidential, but elections down ballot, ballot initiatives and whatnot. And in the, the more rural places we got, we saw the sign of a surge and we could feel that. So, I mean, yet still not prepared. Uh, the good news was, you know, from go as, you know, late as two or three o'clock in the morning, a.m., we were on the phone, progressive leaders from across the country, trying to move out of shock and trauma and straight into strategy. And we're able to move hundreds of events the next day because we felt like we had to begin the resistance out of the gate. And we were able to do that. And really, we haven't stopped since.
1: So can you talk a little bit more about that? And I want to get back to the rural voters a little bit. But first of all, what happened? Because we have a lot of progressive listeners and progressives don't always get along. They're kind of more cat-like they do their own thing. So what about Trump's election kind of changed the culture? And we hope permanently, but at least
2: temporarily. Changed the culture.
1: In terms of people working together? Oh, uh,
2: yes, I think so. I mean, I think there's a... Look, there's nothing like a great enemy to unite people. And mm-hmm. um, we have an enemy unlike any other. And, um, and one that I think is particularly dangerous in that one, a narcissistic authoritarian who really actually doesn't play by any of the rules or norms of of the office of the president so as much as you know probably many listeners here are not big Ronald Reagan or George Bush fans this is a whole different animal and then secondly very tricky and that you have someone and some key strategic advisors Bannon and Miller who actually understand the some of the populist strengths out there the regressive populist strengths and how to play those and doing a, a masterful job at both playing to, to racial uh, and immigration fears while also trying to figure out how to deliver a, a package of economic goods or at least seemingly do so to their voters so i think you're talking about very uh challenging and dangerous adversaries so that's united people you know, I think a lot of the, the organizations that you would think should work together but don't often don't because of credit control and money. Um, organizations need to figure out how to survive, but ultimately I know very few people that said, hey, I think I'll run a progressive organization so I can get credit and control and money. We do it out of our values, but sometimes people get lost along the way. I have seen that fall to the side in incredible ways in this moment, people being generous, people kind of you know not nitpicking about small details and staying focused on the big picture. So it the, the economy enemy
1: is strengthening the progressive movement, yeah. at least now during the emergency, which seems like it's going to be an emergency for some time. Can you pick apart you talked about looking at the rural returns and and having your heart sink on election night. And then you talked about what Bannon, what Miller, what Trump specialize in, this sort of rancid populism. That uh, uses people's resentments and their fears in order to get them to vote essentially against their own interest um, Mm -hmm. for a corporate elite, essentially, Mm -hmm. which is which is the actual policy formation here. Uh, And you you've been studying uh, rural areas, talking to a lot of strategists about it. Uh, And these are areas that are a lot of times declining economically. People are feeling a lot of pain. Uh, What strands are Bannon and Trump pulling that 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 move people in our direction? And why did the Democratic message? Kind of fall flat on a lot of these voters, and these are a lot of voters who might have voted for Obama, and then suddenly are voting for Donald Trump, which seems extraordinary to foreign observers. Right, right.
2: That's a good point. I mean, I think we one we've got to remember a bunch of these folks who voted for Trump are Republicans, who right. you know. So I think that that's a big percentage of these voters, and we should we should not forget about it. I think the like pain and suffering that you talked about like um, can't be overstated. So I think in terms of job loss, the uh, uh, destruction of institutions that people count on in communities, uh, the rise of you know uh, drug use and drug addiction in communities is significant. And people are trying to make meaning of those changes. And the meaning makers, unfortunately, tend to be things like Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and maybe your local pastor who watches Fox News and listens to Rush Limbaugh. So that's a, a challenging dynamic for us to be in. And then I think that Look, you know, you and I know we've been in a populist moment since the financial crisis. And I think that um, there have been a set of progressives that have leaned into that and been willing to drive an agenda and a narrative that was actually uh, structural in terms of the changes that they were pushing, but also naming the enemy in the story. I would say the Democratic Party, by and large, had not named the enemy because Democratic Party, at least parts of it, are in capture by the, the corporate elite as well. So been kind of not really willing to go there in the ways that we might want to go there. What what Trump and Bannon have done so masterfully is they have a narrative that has two enemies, the traditional othering of the immigrant, the the, the Muslim, the person of color, which is actually very traditional Republican uh, uh, fear mongering around race and 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 people people other than themselves and then but they'd also like pitch in a hedge fund person or a Wall Street person mm-hmm. and some days they're for Goldman and some days they hate Goldman the combination of the two really energized people and I think was kind of anti-immigrant and anti-people of color and also seemed anti-establishment. Now we've actually seen. The cabinet is about as establishment as you could ever have. But I think that that was um, played to people's fears and, and drove a lot of voters.
1: And do you have a sense that with the Democratic general election campaign message... That part of the problem is, is that if you are funded, if you go through the the dark money system, right, and the campaign finance system deregulated by Citizens United, and take all that special interest money, all the Wall Street money, all the pharmaceutical money, that you can't—it's really hard for you then to turn around and be anti-establishment. And the problem then becomes, quite frankly, that you become the defenders of a status quo that is discredited left and right.
2: Yes, I mean, I think you're one. You're you're not sure you can say it because of who your donors are. Two, I think in some cases, some of the candidates don't believe it. I think they believe in a kind of neoliberal agenda. Um, And then third, you have no credibility as a messenger. If you're like simultaneously railing against Wall Street and the pharmaceutical companies they're you're right as you're heading off to their fundraiser that they're hosting for you. So you don't have any credibility in those in those arenas.
1: So you're from Southern Indiana, yeah. so
2: you know rural folks.
1: You yeah. know areas. A lot of Southern Indiana has not done well in recent decades. Yeah. Uh, why is it? I, I'm curious. Why it, it to a progressive like a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners, right? They 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 see through Trump or mm-hmm. Bannon right away. And so, why do they find that appealing? And why? And do they actually think that that a Trump is going to ex- improve their economic standing and, and, and improve their lives, or is it just sort of a they're so angry? It's like I'm going to my 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 rebellion against the establishment is to vote for this guy that the whole establishment seems to be against, despite right. the fact, of course, he brought in the establ- the real establishment to run his administration.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, there was you know 700 counties that voted for Obama twice. A, th- a third of which voted for Trump. So that's a very interesting, and though those counties tend to be in the kind of Midwest and, and some of the kind of deindustrialized Midwestern states. Um, so, look, I mean, I, the percentage of folks that I'm really interested in, those that are searching for help. So that these counties that are switching back and forth are, they tend to be getting poorer. They tend to have a higher percentage of non-college-educated whites per year. Um, and they have incredible health disparities compared to their urban counterparts. So people are hurting and people are trying to make meaning. So coming off of the you know, eight years of, of George W. Bush, people said, hey, let's give this Obama guy a try. Eight years later, it didn't feel like, a, I mean, obviously Obama had passed a lot of impressive policy, but it didn't feel like people's actual lives have changed. And they, I think it was a bit of a like, let's throw the bums out and go with this guy. There's a small percentage of folks, around 10 or 15% who voted for Trump, I think despite his being a racist, they feel warm towards unions, cold towards Wall Street, and cold towards CEOs, but they said, let's give this guy a chance, and we got to get those folks back.
1: Yeah, and and when we're going to take a short break in just a second, but when we come back, I think we should talk kind of about the view of government in American society, the idea that government is some sort of alien force in a democracy, like it's the Redcoats, and why. In the, during the Depression era, people saw they needed government in order to intervene in their economic emergency. And now they somehow believe Reagan that, that uh, government's the problem when it's the only possible solution, a democratic government. So we'll be back uh, at Battleground Wisconsin right after these short messages. Welcome back to Battleground, Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig from Citizen National, Wisconsin, and we're with George Gale, the co-director of People's Action, talking about the resistance to Trump and where it leads, and where it leads in terms of having real fundamental reform uh, and progressive reform in the United States. And we left off... Uh, before the break, talking about government and how, in the 1930s, people thought the only way to create opportunity in an economic emergency was to use government, to have a WPA, to do the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, A lot of these investments built up rural areas and created decades of opportunity that was unparalleled and unprecedented. Now people actually think that we need to remove government or retract government, kind of right-wing ideology, when it's the only thing that could actually help their communities and strengthen them in their region. So what do you think is going on there? And part of it is the Democrats have been fairly unwilling to defend government. Do a lot of hit flakes and Mm -hmm. deflections rather than saying flat out, if you want health care, our Democrat government's the only one who can guarantee it to you.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, like, government isn't the problem, it's the prize, but right now it belongs, it's sitting in a trophy case down on Wall Street, so we have to get it back. But I think, uh, I mean, look, this is you know we're dealing with a a very effective 40 50 year campaign to undermine the idea of the role of government and I think kind of a secret sauce in that campaign has been racism and the idea that it is communities of color that are benefiting from government at the expense of everybody else which we all know is not true there are more white people on welfare and receiving uh, assistance from the federal government than anybody Um, but it's been an amazing brand attack that has has made major inroads and you don't kind of rebound from that quickly. One sign of hope for me is, I mean, Bernie Sanders was talking about a very big government program, and I think a a large, not a large, but a decisive number of people that were excited by Sanders' agenda, his message, and serious government intervention in solving problems. Uh, would have voted for him, but they decided he wasn't on the ballot. So they voted for Donald Trump. So I actually think we saw signs of life that people could buy, the government could play uh, a a crucial role in changing things and fixing people's lives. Um, But it was, they heard it from a messenger who they thought was telling the truth. And he was also not afraid to name who the enemy was in the story and gave people another choice.
1: And they heard a messenger who was willing to do it with small contributions and not the corporate money and was able to out violate all the rules of political science modern by outraising the candidate who was willing to take all that money.
2: And, I mean, his his agenda was big and bold. I yeah. feel like sometimes, you know, like, I mean, I, I felt like the Clinton agenda was basically like, we'll make these really bad jobs you all have a little bit less evil. Like, we'll move them up a little bit or we're going to fix this thing. I mean... People weren't, aren't looking for like small incremental solutions in their lives right now. They want a big vision. I don't think people think that somebody's going to get in and have them tomorrow. So the boldness of his agenda, I think people were then going like, hey, if government's the path that gets us there, people, people love Social Security, they love Medicare, mm-hmm. and then he was proposing that on more fronts.
1: Yeah, and quite frankly, you only have Tea Party people holding up signs saying, take gov- get government my Medicaid, and uh, Medicare, if you haven't thought about, if you haven't even described to people over no again that guess what? because we have Democrat government, we have Medicare. And they're connected, (laughs) right? right? They're not separate. And the government's not a threat to Medicare. It's the only way to have Medicare. And, you know, I was on the platform committee for Bernie, and it was a very progressive Democratic platform. And uh, Secretary Clinton, out of the box, at the acceptance speech, campaigned on a bit, but then she dropped it. Mm -hmm. And most of her campaign was about just attacking Trump. And so it was a weird sense in which there's a lot she could have run on that she agreed to that she didn't run on. Uh, But if we learn something from that, from her general election campaign and from Bernie's campaign and the kind of new people it brought into the system, how do we apply that to now? Because it seems to me there's a real risk that, and we learned this in Wisconsin during the protests, that you can have this unprecedented Democratic outpouring, but if there's no way for it to get power, there's a real risk of it dissipating. So you're talking to a lot of the people, and you yourself are planning how we take the next step. So can you kind of Tell people how we keep this alive and how we build actual power with it rather than it rather than basically losing every fight to Trump and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and then losing momentum.
2: Yeah. Um, So I think uh, I mean, let's let's give ourselves a a pat on the back and that the resistance out of the gate is strong. Um, it's on many fronts. If you just look at the uh, resistance to, uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act, it's, it's really, really impressive. It's happening all across the country. And honestly, I wouldn't have predicted that it would have been at this level. So that is happening. You have the, the women's march, you have marches today, you have the women's strike, you have things happening all across the country, um, super encouraging and it's happening in urban and rural areas so super encouraging Um, we have people launching new organizing projects in key states in key parts of those states super encouraging but i will say this at the end of the day if you don't have candidates at all levels of the ticket running on a bold and inspiring agenda you can do all of this other work and we could lose so we don't we we want to protect people the planet and rules of democratic society but we also need to kick trump out and elect a progressive wave and you can't do that if you don't have the right candidates
1: and you need to organize people behind the candidates it's not the individual themselves right. but did bernie since he violated a lot of the established political rules i think secretary clinton was shocked that he was able to raise that mm-hmm. amount of money because it violated everything she thought uh yeah. as a rule of politics can we bring that down to governor's races mm-hmm. to state legislative races etc because if we can then we can not only win elections, but get a majority that could actually rewrite the campaign finance laws and and get all the big corporate money out of politics.
2: I think we can if if we have movement in the streets. We have to have vibrant social movements that both kind of put wind at the sails of candidates and also when they get elected are able to hold them accountable. I do think we need those candidates to be seen as part of a movement. So I think one good gubernatorial candidate in Wisconsin, but in one here might not be enough, but it looks like there's a full slate of bold progressives running that are part of a big story. And my, my job as somebody that lives in Illinois or your job as somebody that lives in Wisconsin is to contribute to this part of a kind of new movement politics. I think it can happen. But I do think we need a broad based effort. And that's why uh, people's action and you're involved in this and people across the country are doing significant work to recruit and develop candidates at all levels of government so we can have a big slate in 2018 and 2020.
1: Now, the problem we found in Wisconsin is, is that if you lose the elections, in our case, it was the recall elections, then it dissipates energy, like there's no way for the movement to go. And a lot of critiques of the populist movement in the late 19th century are that once they went into politics, they lose their movement momentum. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a movement guy. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to you're lead organizing groups across the country uh, to build, like, really outside power to influence the system – so that's the danger, right? right, going into elections. Like Wisconsin, we didn't have the internal organizing, but we didn't do a general strike. We didn't uh, go at economic power that way when Walker did Act mm-hmm. 10. We went to politics, and then we we're in the old political system where we were outgunned and where we had all of the problems with how the districts are drawn, et cetera, et cetera. So you could say a little bit about how... If we, we need to go into politics, I agree with you about how we prevent it from being a dead end for for the for social movement. Yeah,
2: I think we've got to stay in live fights around around issues and issue campaigns, and those could be um, resistant fights with Trump. Those could be, I mean, in, in many states, people have been dealing with some version of Trumpism for a while in their states. You guys here in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. um, live fights around issues um, at the state level, but also I think you can go on offense and a lot of cities. And people are doing that around around wages, around housing, around prosecutor accountability. So I think if you can have a mix of life fights and not say, oh, now we're doing elections and we're like leaving the rest of this other stuff and we're, we're going to, it can't be an either or and we can't pivot too hard to one thing or another. And I think we also got to be looking at what are some of the corporate campaigns that we need to be running. So you got to keep people in motion. And then something you said earlier, I don't want to get lost is like, Winning matters. We have to keep winning. And um, um, as you said before, we have to redefine winning. And the wins might be a little further in uh, between than usual, but we've got to keep... Pe- winning's important if we can't stop doing it.
1: And here's my suspicion, I will get your take, that you have two big powers in American society, our Democrat government and large corporations, which are almost like an organism. They're growing in power. And they've used the conservative movement to discredit the main check on their power. Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to be a country that believes in checks and balances. I'm talking about the constitutional mm-hmm. ones. Uh, but in fact, that check and balance was created in the early 20th century and after World War II and is now being lost. And so in a way, we need to refurbish, reclaim America's first contribution to the world, that is a large-scale democracy, in order to have an agency for advancing an equal and just society for everyone. That that's the mm-hmm. fight.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think you just said it in many ways, like, but I think that we've got to, we're in a moment where we actually have to be driving big corporate campaigns and to start kind of clarifying who the enemy is, not only in narrative, but also kind of in our organizing. And that's, in some ways, I feel hopeful because if you go back to pre-financial crisis, there was very little corporate campaigning happening on the progressive side. That has really that picked up with Occupy. There were lots of banking campaigns. People think about divestment campaigns. That's picking up. But I think you have to drive those fights because that creates the which side are you on moment. That creates the narrative around who's controlling our democracy and our politics. And that engagement of people in the streets and in motion around those efforts can be our first kind of proof of a new democracy.
1: It's partly connecting the dots. Obama dropped the ball on really going after Wall Street after the financial crisis, not prosecuting anyone. This has been well documented. We think health care is separate from Wall Street. Well, Wall Street is the one that underwrites insurance companies who want to insure only healthy people, pharmaceutical companies that want to use public money to do their research, but then want to price gouge and park the profits overseas. So it seems like you're right. The corporate fight is connected to the fight to reclaim democracy.
2: Yep, and I would just say this: you got it. We should continue to do what you just did. Follow the money to who really has it, no matter what the issue is—health care, the pipeline, uh, Wall Street. We just have to follow the money, and that's where the culprit is.
1: Well, that's a great way to end. And we've been with George Gale, the co-director of People's Action, and Battleground, Wisconsin will be back after this short message. Once again, this is Battleground, Wisconsin, which is produced by Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Uh, You can find out more at citizenactionwi.org, or you can like us on Facebook. That's it this week from Battleground, Wisconsin. Well, I thank Jorna Taylor, our, uh, the, who hosted today, stepped into the breach, and our producer, Brian Woolwich. So thank you, and have a great week next week.